Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy The Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. We finally got around to posting our discussion of Onward and the state of Pixar today, and we're currently working on an episode about parental philosophy and introducing your kids to movies. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast that's usually devoted to a classic film and how it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here with Genevieve Kosky, Scott Tobias, and Keith Phipps. Now, normally, this is where we do a little bit of mildly comedic nonsense leading up to the reveal of a specific movie pairing we're going to be discussing. Then we tell you what those two movies have in common and how we're going to be comparing them over the course of a couple of podcasts. But this week, we're breaking the rules and the usual format. This week, we're doing a one-off self-contained episode. No pairing, though we'll probably get into a lot of comparisons. And that's because this past week, some of our favorite movies became widely available for the first time, not just as repertory release favorites or home Blu-ray purchases, but readily accessible in streaming format. This is the year that Japan's beloved Studio Ghibli fully enters the online age. Fans of this podcast are probably fairly familiar with at least some of Studio Ghibli's work, like the Oscar winner Spirited Away or the unbeatable children's classic My Neighbor Tortoro. Serious animation fans have probably dug deeper into the Ghibli library, into the breakout environmental fairy tale drama Princess Mononoke, or maybe the Disney home video releases of Castle in the Sky or Kiki's Delivery Service. Or, for even more serious animation buffs, their stylistic experiments like The Tale of the Princess Kiyuga or My Neighbors the Yamadas. Ghibli has released 21 feature films so far, with studio co-founder Hayao Miyazaki currently very slowly at work on a 22nd. But until just a few months ago, you could only see these movies either by buying discs for home viewing, or by being lucky enough to catch them at special theatrical events or at festivals. Ghibli's movies are masterworks of 2D cell animation, with deep, lush backgrounds and vivid imagery. They're made with an attention to craft and detail that was particularly rare when the studio launched 35 years ago, and is just about unheard of now, when most studios have either moved over to computer-generated animation, or are operating on a fast-paced pipeline that doesn't allow for Ghibli's focus on handmade work. And part of that obsession with traditional craftsmanship has been a conviction that films don't belong on streaming services, where it's harder to control the quality. We'll get into how that changed, talk about where to find Ghibli films, and focus in on one of them in particular after this. And to try to use the crystal's power for selfish reasons will bring great unhappiness. You know, the odds are against you. They simply don't understand. The same technology that kept Lapkida airborne also made it a major power that once dominated the entire planet. Shoot anyone who resists! What will we do? Come on. Beyond that cloud is a floating city that no one here on Earth believes exists. We're going in! We have an emergency. Heads up! The way to Lapkida has been open! Arrest him! Please let me come with you. I need to save her. I'm oh, telling you, this thing is alive! Stop it! You're destroying everything!
listen, we can understand. So what changed for Studio Ghibli movies? December 2019 was the first year the studio made its films available for digital rental, and this spring they've been rolling out for Netflix viewers around the world. In America, though, the new streaming service HBO Max got the exclusive streaming license, so the films are available there. Either way, streaming access means Ghibli movies are now much more available to viewers around the world than they've ever been before, and millions of people who've never seen them will finally have the chance to. Why the change? Producer Toshio Suzaki, one of the original founders of Studio Ghibli and its longtime public face, told Entertainment Weekly in March that it was because of an interview he saw with Woody Allen, of all people. Allen was talking about making a film entirely for streaming services because of the audience accessibility it would have. Suzuki says that thinking about that film, and thinking about opening up Ghibli's work to a wider audience, became a compelling prospect. He's also hinted at another reason for the digital availability, though. As I said before, Miyazaki is working on yet another film, but his laborious, time-intensive work process means that movie won't be available for a few more years at least, and the studio hasn't put out a new film since 2014's When Marnie Was There. So the financial boost of selling the studio's streaming rates was likely an incentive. Whatever the reason, we really don't mind. We're just happy to finally have more access to these films. Some of us grew up in an era when they weren't available at all in America, and we watched as they made clumsy inroads into the country, first given tepid theatrical runs by Walt Disney Studios, which didn't give them much marketing push, and then coming to DVD in boulderized rewritten forms. When New York distribution company G-Kids picked up the release rights and started producing higher quality dubs and discs, that was a relief, but it still left Ghibli's movies as boutique features for DVD collectors. Now, at least outside the US, they're going to be very easy to find on Netflix. The problem is that they're also likely to disappear into the giant pit of Netflix offerings, like so many other titles. So we decided to sit down and talk about our personal Ghibli experiences and recommendations, starting with a more in-depth look at the studio's very first film, Hayao Miyazaki's Castle in the Sky. Miyazaki had already directed a couple of films before Castle in the Sky, starting with The Castle of Cagliostro, a feature film adventure for Lupin III, the gentleman crook main character of an anime TV show that Miyazaki worked on in the 1970s. He followed that up with Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, a partial adaptation of a fantasy manga epic he was working on in the 1980s. The success of that movie gave him and his TV partner Aisio Takahata, along with Suzuki and producer Yashiyoshi Takuma, the clout that they needed to found Ghibli, and 1986's Castle in the Sky was the proof of concept the studio needed. That's where the Ghibli story started, so that's where we're going to start in this special one-off episode devoted to Ghibli magic. So... You're not interested in money, but you want to find out the truth about Laputa. <laughs> well, I guess there's worse reasons for you wanting to become a pirate. Mother, I say let him come along. Toe the line and work harder. Overboard you go. Yes, Captain. Yes! No more swabbing the decks! Hooray! I won't have to wash the dishes! I've peeled my last potato! What's that frosting? It's kind of pink and swirly. Will you shut up? Ah, what can I tell you? They just really like dessert. Whew. Well, I've been talking a lot. Um, <laughs> Let's hear from you guys. What's your history with Castle in the Sky? And what's your history with Ghibli in general? I think we're all new to Castle in the Sky, right, guys? So I'm ashamed to admit it, but yeah, it's the yeah. first time seeing Castle in the Sky. Um, that is yeah. wild. New to me as well. Mm -hmm. That ashamed to admit it feeling is something I come up against a lot with Ghibli because like, I've seen a fair amount, but there's also some big ones I haven't seen. And I blame that partially on the availability issues you've been talking about, Tasha, but also just I've missed some big ones and I feel bad about that. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, I also feel like watching this movie, I kind of like, it's kind of like, oh, wait, I never listened to the Beatles. Right. Yeah. <laughs> this is where everything comes from. I get it now, you know? Yeah, <laughs> I haven't exactly. seen a bunch of his other movies, but still, it felt very much like, oh, this is this is like mission statement, and here's what it's all going to be about. And you can kind of follow various strands of this through his other films. Yeah, it's such a keystone kind of work. There are just, there's so many nascent pieces of Miyazaki in particular, like the sort of the Ghibli design and, and the Ghibli mindset in here, but like Miyazaki's obsessions in general. But what's it like? I mean, this was one of my very earliest uh, Ghibli's. I, I saw Tortoro first and Grave of the Fireflies also very, very early on uh, when it came to the United States, like almost immediately after its, its Japanese release. But I'm not having the experience of coming to Castle in the Sky for the first time after seeing like something much more sophisticated and like late in the game, like spirited away. What's it like to see this film for the first time now? I mean, I would echo what Keith said in terms of just seeing it and understanding how Miyazaki and, and Ghibli sort of evolved from that moment. And in my view, kind of refined it a lot too, in terms of kind of understanding you know, finding a voice and, and kind of working certain certain elements that are in Castle in the Sky come into play, you know, in later films and Spirited Away and, you know, Howl's Moving Castle, especially Princess Mononoke, all that stuff. You could see all of the germs of, of all that, the roots of all those uh, movies in Castle in the Sky. So it was kind of exciting to watch in that respect, while also feeling I do still feel like it's a somewhat of a rough draft. <laughs> I did like the film, but I'm going to guess maybe a little bit less than everyone else. <laughs> I struggled with a lot of it. I struggled with kind of sorting through it. Well, the pleasures for me of watching a Miyazaki film is engaging with the sort of dream logic that he sets up. It kind of allows you to sort of meander through an unconventional kind of abstract world. And I found myself struggling more so to do that in Castle in the Sky than I would with some of the films he did later. Why is that? Is it because it's so episodic? Is it because there's not enough dreamlike uh, qualities to it? Yeah, probably both. It felt a little busy and misshapen, particularly the second act. I think before it has such a very strong start. And then I think before you finally get to the castle, the events leading up to that that moment, the film lost me a little bit. But um, it caught me back. <laughs> I, I can't believe I'm going to say this, Scott, but wow, do I disagree with you. There's there's a sequence in the, in the second act that uh -huh. is maybe my favorite part of the film, but we'll get to okay. that. Genevieve, uh, you say you still haven't watched some of the big ones. Does this play for you like nascent Miyazaki, like like early Ghibli? Like, do you get that same Keystone feeling, or uh, do you feel like you're coming into this one at the right time? It's interesting because listening to Scott talk, I was thinking if I had come to this movie at a different point in my Ghibli viewing, or honestly, just a different point in my life, I may have liked it less than I did. But at this particular moment uh, in time, um, for a lot of extra textual reasons, this was like the exact type of Ghibli movie I needed right now. Like most of the Ghiblis I've seen skew more toward the, I guess you could say, sophisticated side, more adult side, like Mononoke, Grave of the Fireflies. Those were my introductions to Studio Ghibli and, and Spirited Away shortly after that. So this, by comparison to that, I think... It's understandable and fair to read it as, you know, more simplistic, straightforward, whatever you want to call it. But just as an adventure movie and as a piece of animation, I just like locked into it immediately. What I think I really 
glommed onto was just the world. I mean, I've talked before on this podcast how I'm a, I'm really drawn to complex and detailed world building. And this is a world that has so many levels, literally, like, you know, from the mining town to the castle in the sky to the airships, like, there's just so much texture to this film in terms of not just setting, but the types of adventure set pieces you, you get throughout it. I mean, this not remotely as as an insult but it felt like the best possible theme park type of of movie for me like there there's even like the whole mine car chase it's like it's a roller coaster you know <laughs> it just had a almost childlike energy that i don't naturally associate with ghibli films even though i know they do have films that are much more in this vein they're just not the ghiblis that i've seen for the most part this is all very roundabout way of saying that i really liked castle in the sky and it it was it was a very pleasurable viewing experience for me if i you know revisited it in five or ten years i could see having a very different reaction to it but right now a plus I feel like Castle in the Sky is just positioned in an interesting place where like, later Miyazaki movies like Ponyo, for instance, mm-hmm. Ponyo focuses on some extremely young kids. Yes. Uh, the boy protagonist is five. The female protagonist is a magical fish girl. So who knows how old she really is? <laughs> and their relationship is just very, very simple in, in many places, just kind of like wordless. But the adventure is still very, very surreal and full of dream logic. Tortoro is also intended for pretty small children. The kids in that, I think, are eight and four. Uh, but they're, they're dealing with kind of fantastical dream logic and forest spirits that kind of come and go. And whenever the forest spirits are in their lives, everything takes on this like heightened dreamlike quality. Castle in the Sky doesn't really have that sort of dream quality. And that's, that's sort of what, uh, what Scott was speaking to. Yeah. It feels like almost more like a Disney child adventure. Like mm-hmm. there are, there are elements in like that train race where there's a car chasing a train along a disintegrating uh, train trestle and people are shooting at each other from, from one set of tracks to the other that would not be out of place entangled, you know, like, yeah. like that kind of modern Disney manic feel. So in a strange sort of way, this movie feels a lot more like the films of my childhood, like tonally and, and conceptually uh, in, in execution. I find it easier, both easier to swallow and just maybe less engaging in some ways because it isn't different in the way uh, some yeah. Ghibli movies are. But then it goes off into these strange places, uh, not necessarily in terms of execution because it's still an adventure, but emotionally. Uh, there's a lot of stuff in this movie that happens that just feels – for lack of a better word, I mean, it's it's very Miyazaki. I think that's kind of where I got stuck a little bit because I had just rewatched Spirited Away a couple of days before with the family on our family movie night, which is a Friday night. And there's something that movie is so complete and so lyrical and gentle and kind of like, and you're just getting this, this sort of this hypnotic kind of flow of the thing. And I feel like Castle in the Sky ended up be frustrating me in a way because it has moments like that. Where it's like, okay, this is Miyazaki as I understand him now. And then th- those moments give way to a lot of adventure and noise and, you know, tangled mythology and that sort of thing. So I think I think it was, maybe it's a me problem or maybe it's about when I'm, you know, how I come at Miyazaki and what my understanding of him is may have created a kind of a roadblock 
for me to go back and see this as something maybe better than a formative work as something as something that stands alone as a great movie yeah I'm, my take on it is i basically just kind of i, I it's just it's just neat <laughs> I mean, not, to be, <laughs> yeah. not to really simplify it but like i just loved it's a thread throughout his movies uh all the way up through the wind rises i mean how much he loves technology and just how machines work and just designing mm-hmm. all that stuff and just i was just sort of hypnotized less i mean you're right something like spirited away which i think is his best movie uh has a sort of a hypnotic quality that kind of plays into the themes and everything but i was kind of hypnotized just but just by the sheer design and imagination mm-hmm. on display here uh and that was enough for me and honestly i felt like i was kind of having your experience scott where it's like this is cool thematically it's just not particularly deep but i think once you get to laputa and you get to like sort of the what people want to use it for what happened with it what its history was and what its future might be you know i, I thought that was like oh this has kind of been in the background the whole all along. It's kind of being foregrounded now in a way that really works. Yeah, I mean, I, w- I want to be absolutely clear here that I liked Castle in the Sky. I don't want to. I'm worried. I'm worried that people. I'm worried that people are going to listen to the podcast and think, "Man, he didn't like how, how can you not like?" I'm I'm talking relative to some of the other Miyazaki's I've seen. Yeah, yeah welcome um, to my world, Scott, where yeah. where mild disagreement is uh, taken as outright loathing and, and hatred on no, all that's good. It. We we've disagreed. We've been less far apart on things and disagreed even <laughs> harsher <laughs> well that's we've we've kind of teased around the fact that this is just like a lodestone of of miyazaki themes and ideas what stands out for you particularly what really stood out for me at the end was the idea of, of society just kind of falling prey to excess falling you know abusing uh natural resources i mean that's certainly a running theme through many of the films as as, as well but I mean, also just sort of the, you know, like I said, this the awe with which this world is presented. But it's also like a fully functional world. Like you feel like there's an economy here. There's a society. It's like this strange fantasy land that's, that's really grounded in history as we know it and, and recognizable elements of, in this case, early 20th century, late 19th century culture that have just taken a slightly different turn than they did in our world. And it's obvious to, I mean, we've already kind of stated it, but the uh, the fixation with not just flight, but just transportation, <laughs> you know, uh, vessels in, in general, you know, you've got such a variety of them here with not just the airships, but, you know, also the like military diesel train thing. And but what's part of that, it's not just like, oh, Miyazaki likes to draw planes. <laughs> it's like there's such a sense of movement associated with all of those vehicles, I guess, uh, conveyances, like the actual animation has such a sense of movement in those sequences that I think is just a different type of uh, movement than we see in, in a lot of Western animation. Like just the sequences of them like sort of flying low over the landscape or even like going through the the storm. There's just so such dynamism to the way that these planes and airships and whatnot move through the frame that feels very Miyazaki specifically, but it also feels like a touchstone of Ghibli, all of his films for Ghibli, I guess. (laughs) So I'm coming off. I, I wasn't on the last uh, podcast pairing because <laughs> I I was working a 70-hour week pulling together uh, this project for Polygon.com on Studio Ghibli. 
Um, we had uh, 30, I, I, I got the numbers today, 39 new uh, articles about mm-hmm. Studio Ghibli movies, that, specifically essays delving into the individual films and uh, some of the, the series' big themes and, you know, like one-offs about all of the things that Miyazaki has been reported to hate over the years. <laughs> um, and a, a really interesting excerpt from an upcoming book um, talking about the, the battles that's uh, Neil Gaiman fought with Harvey Weinstein to preserve the tone of uh, Princess Mononoke uh, when he he did the translation for it. But um digging into uh, like I my my big contribution was a piece about Castle in the Sky and digging into like a lot of the kind of the origins and the subtext of this film. One of the things I found out that I think I'd been aware of previously but had forgotten in in the way you do I it felt both like a surprise and like just sort of like rediscovering something that's that's lived in the background is that Miyazaki's father was an avionics engineer and he owned his own flight company that designed and built parts for World War II zero warplanes. And so Miyazaki grew up around plane designs. He, he grew up around like engineering questions related to flight. And that's part of where that fascination comes from, but also part of where his like detail oriented approach to, to airships comes from. And there's so, so much of that in this movie, mm-hmm. you guys. I mean, so many different kinds of airships, like a giant war dirigible and like a, a passenger commuter dirigible and this thing that's basically like a kite with a basket under it uh, big enough for a couple of kids there's like a little pirate airship there's the weird little bug winged skimmer things that the mm-hmm. air pirates get around on there's just so much delving into to different methods of flight and a little it's kite glider I like. yeah it's just it's <laughs> it's kind of fascinating and adorable it mm-hmm. it feels like at times it feels like he sat down with uh, like his, his Ghibli co-designers, just like, what else could fly? <laughs> what, else, <laughs> what else could we put in this movie? And of course, the whole story is about a giant flying city in the sky. But the flip side of that coin is that he also grew up with a substantial amount of guilt about his family's participation in the war. You know, his, his family's participation and potential culpability in creating these the machinery of death, essentially. And you see a lot of that coming out in movies like Porco Rosso and The Wind Rises. Like The Wind Rises specifically deals with the the question of as a an avionics engineer designing zero warplanes, like what's your responsibility? If you're just like an idealistic creator that wants to make the perfect plane, what's your responsibility is you know it's going to be used to, to kill people in large quantities. And in Castle in the Sky, the disgust at the military is so blatant. It's so painted across the film, not just in the disgust for the villain, the piece, uh, Colonel Muska, but like the army itself is just this disorganized, uh, greedy, violent, perpetually misunderstanding, uh, like a group of looters, basically. They have no chill. <laughs> you know, they have no morals, <laughs> they have no organization, and they have no chill. Is that is in the script? They have no chill? I, I think, remember. well, I mean, I like, I don't know what it is in the original Japanese. It, that's it probably reads better in the original Japanese. <laughs> but that's one of the big themes for me here is that he returns a lot, I think, to this idea of the military is basically an organization that takes away people's humanity and drives them to consider murder okay. And that's something that you see in Takahata's Ghibli films as well. It's it's something you see, like, regardless of who's directing. It's just an, an overall theme stretching through Ghibli work. 
Yeah, I sort of related to that. Uh, another thing that struck me is toward the end when Muska unleashes the weapon of mass destruction, and it's a, a giant mushroom cloud, and it's, uh, mm. I think, intentionally evocative of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And it is interesting to me that this was, I, I'm assuming, being produced simultaneously with Grave of the Fireflies, because Grave of the Fireflies come out like the next year. And that was... Uh, Grave of the Fireflies and Totoro came out the same year. They, they were actually a, a double feature in right. theaters. <laughs> Such oh, <wow>. so... <laughs> yeah. But anyway, so, okay, so there was a little more, more room between them. And obviously, it, it's a, they're two different directors, but that does also, that's, I think, the, the legacy of Hiroshima and Nagasaki is something that uh, pops up occasionally in, in Ghibli films. And to have them in such close proximity in these two films was striking to me. I haven't seen Grave of the Fireflies, so it's hard for me to... Yeah. To... Well, I, I, I wrote about it for that AV Club list of great movies that you can't watch a second time, so I'm not allowed to watch it a, a second time, alas. <laughs> but it's, um... it's rough. It's very, very emotional. Yeah. And I, I recommend that you watch it maybe maybe after your daughters have graduated Yeah, I was going to say, definitely not Friday movie night. But actually, to just quickly segue to an entirely different question, but uh, talking about watching with this with your kids, I have to ask, sub or dub for this film and Ghibli in general? So, uh, sub, I mean, my child is nine, um, mm-hmm. and that's subs, subs a way to, I'm sorry, dub, wow. not sub, dub, okay. dub, dub, dub. Uh, okay. I also think that the voice talent they've done for these is pretty great. I mean, I love, I love, uh, you know, Cloris Leachman has a role, it's like the John Ratzenberger of, uh, of Studio Ghibli dubs, you know, so it's, it's fun seeing her, uh, hearing her and things. So I know when I saw Princess Mononoke, I saw it subtitled. I think that's the only one I've ever mm. seen subtitled. Though I, I should probably check them out. But on the other hand, I, I love like Kiki's Delivery Service. I love Phil Hartman. Uh, it's, oh, it's so, so, so great in that in that movie. So I, I would, mm. I'd hate to give that up. But um, I do. Yeah, get, well, the, I, I am. I am. Uh, I do understand the argument against it, though. I just find it so distracting to have celebrity voices, yeah. like very familiar celebrity voices. And even roles that are incredibly iconic, like like Robin Williams is the genie in Aladdin, it, it pulls me, like I can see their faces so vividly, it pulls me out of the fantasy a little bit. So I'm not a, I'm not a super big fan of, uh, of dubs solely <laughs> for the, the chance to hear celebrity voices and in interesting roles. But well, this I, one, this one is James Vanderbeek and Anna Paquin wow. are the two mm-hmm. leads. I, 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 watch, I watch sub subtitles, so I this is all the voice <laughs> casting stuff is new yep. to me. I, I will say, I, I, I watched the dub because I was watching with the kid. Well, I mean, the, with Isabel on this one, the twelve-year-old. I will say, I do think, like, I, I am normally a, a super, super hardcore uh, sub subtitle snob, but the the dub voices for G-Kids uh, soundtrack of My Neighbor Tortoro is, I think it's just aces. Um, I think those two little girls are absolutely fantastic. So, so your yeah. mileage may vary. I feel like, I mean, I'm, I'm certainly a snob about, about subtitles with live action. The animation, I feel like it's it's more of a, an edge case, I guess. Well, I mean, one of the reasons I tend to be a little snobby about it is because it's really pretty typical to produce a fairly direct translation for subs and then mm-hmm. to rewrite everything for dubs yeah. because you're trying to fit mouth movements. So you're trying to 
kind of capture the tone of what's being said, um, but often like taking a, a, a 20 word thing and trying to get it into two words. Oh, yeah. Because- there's so many. I, I was really set on this one more than other other uh, dubs, how much like there there are no periods in these <laughs> in the dialogue. It's just one sentence running into the next sentence. Yeah, like I already have a sense when watching with subtitles that like I'm missing a layer because just like some things translate differently and, you know, maybe lose some of their poeticism, you know, in the translation from from Japanese to, to English. So I think my general sense is that by watching with the dub, I would be putting even another layer of remove and adding on a layer of distraction in the uh, in the recognizable voices aspect. Um, so that's sort of my logic for defaulting to subtitles. Not that I fault anyone, especially young children, for uh, for watching the dub version. But as someone who is not watching with small children, I like I'm pretty strident about the subtitles. Yeah, uh, I mean, I am too, but it's because I I came up on very very early American dubs, um, mm-hmm. which were often really of indifferent quality. Um, oh, I mean, did you see Totoro? The uh, the trauma distributed Totoro. That was the first time I watched that movie, and and I was still charmed by it. But it was not it was not a a, a high budget, a big budget dubbing situation there. I'm pretty sure that's the edition I I actually still own. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, you know, you, it's one of those things you get a DVD copy, you, you kind of keep it around, keep it in the mix. Hmm. Because it was the first one I encountered, it's the one that sounds familiar to me. Hmm. But yeah, G Kids version is a lot better. Before we get too far down the the rabbit hole of uh, this particular thing, I kind of in in going back to Miyazaki themes and also kind of looping back to uh, you're wrong, Scott Tobias, uh, chapter <laughs> three thousand eight hundred sixty two, the Tasha Robinson story. One of the things this movie does that is really unusual for Ghibli film is it's got a villain. It, it has a villain mm-hmm. who doesn't doesn't soften, who doesn't turn into an ally or uh, at best like an an understandable and, and harmless threat. Um, you have villains in like like pretty scary villains in movies like Spirited Away or Howl's Moving Castle that like literally melt and deform into like small harmless versions of themselves. Uh, you have an awful lot of Studio Ghibli movies where there isn't even really a hint of a villain. There's the big villain is is sadness basically. Mm-hmm. The the villain is not giving it your all or, or giving up. So the fact that there's like a full on bad guy here is unusual, but there's also the pirate queen Dola, Dola. who is a very, very <laughs> typical. I was like, when are we getting to Dola? <laughs> so, so Scott, you, yeah, you, you right. got a little lost in the second act as far as you're concerned. My, huh? maybe my favorite sequence in the entire film <sighs> is when the two, we haven't really talked about the, the plot at all, but a nutshell version, uh, there's a young girl with a legacy uh, attached to this lost flying city in the sky. And she meets a young boy uh, who does his best to protect and save her from various people chasing her, including a band of sky pirates who want to loot the city and a, a military that wants to weaponize the city and Colonel Muska, who has his own his own plot going on. So there's a sequence where the two kids have kind of signed on with the Sky Pirates, uh, who still in, fully intend to exploit them. And Dola, the, the pirate queen, is just... <laughs> She's such an unusual character. Like she's she is an air pirate queen, but she's also like a fat old lady in bloomers. 
uh, <laughs> with like with one tooth and pink pigtails sticking out the side of her head. I was gonna say, don't forget the pigtails. That's, that's what. Uh, <laughs> that's her. That's her signature. Yeah. Even even before seeing this movie, I was familiar with those pigtails. That is uh, <laughs> iconic. I think character Thick. design. And she's she's just delightful. You know, she's she's big. She's a big, loud, over the top character. Like your, our actual villain, Colonel Muska, is very debonair and dialed down. And uh, like, if he had a mustache, it'd be a mustache stroking villain. But he's a Dola's tiny glasses just, villain. <laughs> tiny <laughs> more, glasses. He's a tiny glasses villain. She's a shoves an entire ham into her face kind <laughs> yeah. of villain. <laughs> but there's this sequence where the two kids uh, end up in the. Uh, sort of the crow's nest of the pirate ship together, kind of at, with their first quiet moment together since all this nonsense started. And they huddle under a blanket together and kind of like catch each other up on what's go what's what's happened and where they are and how they feel about it. And the entire time, Dola, the pirate queen, is lying in her bed below them, listening in on them uh, through a, a speaker tube that they don't know is there. And we get to watch as she starts off like just very clearly avidly listening for anything that she can turn into money and like slowly she seems to drift simultaneously towards sleep and towards sympathy with them and watching her character change in real time as she listens to these two kids I, it, it's it's such a Miyazaki thing, you know, watching a villain turn into an ally is a thing that he does a lot. But watching it happen beat by beat in real time, kind of coupled with the idea of this very fierce character drifting towards sleep. I just I find it so beautiful and so tonally exceptional. Five stars. Scott's wrong. <laughs> you're, you're gonna, this is directed at me. This uh, who, who you're, you're I, the one that said I, you got I, lost in Scott, the second act. I apparently don't yourself. like this. I apparently don't like this sequence. Oh, the fact that it takes place this in the second act. No, I'm sorry. I, no, I, I I like that sequence too. I I don't uh, I don't have much of. A, I honestly don't have. I, I like the movie. I just I, I just uh, you know I, I don't really I can't really push against that at, at all. Um, at least that specific moment um had i didn't lose me at that point well just i mean like what is it in the second act that loses you i mean that's that's where we get uh like all the robot stuff um and like the dialogue in the military fortress uh and a bunch of stuff like that like what what doesn't work for you i found myself really having this when did we get to the fireworks factory thing where i was just wanting to them to get to the get to the place. <laughs> no, Scott, it's a castle in the sky. It's not a fireworks. <laughs> okay, oh, I mean there, there are there fireworks are fireworks there. There. Yeah, yeah, there are, there are. And I think once we got once we got there, it's just a, you know the whole thing kind of like snapped into focus again for me. You know, I just I felt a little bit lost in in, in getting there, and may, maybe that maybe maybe my fault. Maybe just a. I mean, I, I think it's a matter of taste because, like, I actually really like the second act, and but I will acknowledge that it that it's busy. You know, you're you're moving around to a bunch of different places, and there's a lot of plot mechanics that need to click into place before you get to the castle in the sky. So, like, I can I can kind of see where that that feeling is coming from. But as I mentioned before, as someone who is very kind of attracted to world building and finding out more details about this this world, I really responded to that portion of the movie because it did just keep like expanding in, in a really appealing way. And I really kind of loved everything on the, on the Tiger Moth, which is the name of the, the pirate ship, I guess, just because it did 
reveal Dola as a different sort of character than I initially assumed her to be. Actually, at first, the the comparison point that came to mind for me was Ma Beagle and the Beagle Boys from from yeah. Tales. <laughs> Very strong, it's such a good strong Ma Beagle vibes. Yeah, but that aspect of this all those characters just like unfold in a really interesting way her sons too i mean they're they're doofuses throughout the movie but they're they become more endearing doofuses during those scenes so yeah put me on the scott's wrong camp i guess (laughs) i'm kidding scott you're a little bit wrong just a little bit (laughs) welcome welcome you're allowed to be wrong scott welcome to my camp we have cookies and balloons so you don't think i mean you watch something like this and you and then i mean Totoro was next, right? I mean, he, he went from this to Totoro. I mean, it, Totoro just seems so singular to me as an achievement. Just like this is like nothing, like nothing I'd uh, I'd have seen from anyone. You know, certainly of the Japanese animation, I'd I'd seen to that point where I was exposed to Totoro. Uh, Totoro was like nothing I'd ever seen. The tone of it, the certain, the quietness of it, the lyricism. Uh, the things I really, you know, the qualities I really love of of Miyazaki's—they're not as present here. And, uh, and, and the movie's um, not quiet enough for you. We get it, Scott. It's too noisy. It's too loud. It's, it's <laughs> too busy. It's, it's bu- it's, it is a very—it's just a very busy—it's a very busy movie. I mean, um, this may, is. It, it, I, I wonder if the subtitle—if uh, the subs people are have got something going with this thing because uh, <laughs> it's a—it's a pretty loud. The 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 voice work is pretty loud in in. <laughs> castle in the, oh the yeah i could definitely see that being especially uh, it'd be, I, god bless Clarice leachman but that is a that is not not a uh subtle piece of work oh no she's <laughs> she's great though i was a little thrown by vanderbeek doing a little boy voice but it, it worked it ended up fine I, I, th- I thought he was actually pretty good okay so here's a question i need some clarification on because tasha i think in in your piece on castle in the sky which i read it was very good i'll i'll oh, thank you i'll link it in the description so everyone else can read it but uh you you make note of the sequence on the uh on the tiger moth where dola's sons are kind of putting the moves on on Sheeta, you know and it being creepy because she's a preteen girl do we know how old these two characters, Pazu and Shida, are? I mean, they're they're small. They're drawn smaller than everyone mm-hmm. else, so I think they register as children. But I have a hard time registering them just through their behavior and what they've endured, what we've we're told they've endured in their lives, at registering them as children. Like I I, I feel like I'm like processing them maybe in the 17 year old range more than than preteen and i i may have missed something where we hear exactly how old they are but i'm curious if anyone has a read there. you know i i certainly don't remember any specific line where we're given ages um it's it, for me it's just it's in the drawings i mean mm-hmm. there there is kind of that they are notably uh, shorter than everyone else <laughs> they're, they're shorter and they're they're rounder like their limbs are rounder their faces are rounder which usually in in anime and manga is uh, like a signifier for for youth and innocence i mean i'm thinking about uh, like going back to tezuka's astro boy uh like characters like that that are just expressly drawn as little kids because they're they're so rounded and and so big they're they're almost like pinocchio-esque so for me, it's like their lack of, of physical development. Um, mm-hmm. The fact that they're both like the Pazu, the boy uh, doesn't have shoulders really yet. Uh, the Sheeta, the girl doesn't have any kind of curves at all. Oh, I think she does. When she puts on those bloomers, I mean, obviously the bloomers give her curves below, but she's like pretty well developed up, up top. 
as I, Jerry, I noted. Jerry, I'm glad I'm glad you took uh, that that observation. <laughs> this seems like we're, we're heading into Anthony Lane territory. But, well, no, because well, I bring it up because it's it's related to my point I'm making. That is like how where where do these characters fall on the child to adult spectrum? Because like we also get the detail about Sheeta parents dying and her like running the farm in their absence and mm-hmm. her apparently doing a pretty good job at it like if these characters are meant to be like 11 or so like good for Sheeta but, but I, I think like that combined with specifically how what her character design looked like on on the tiger moth in, in that outfit I just was like oh she's probably like 17 yeah I, I definitely don't process her as as curvy at all in that outfit I mean she's it's very billowy. It's it's mm-hmm. got big big pant legs. It's their harem pants. It's got big poofy sleeves. Mm-hmm. Um, but I definitely don't see her as developed at all. I I see them both as little kids. And yeah, it's a little weird that Pazu, you know, if he's eleven, he's also living alone in an abandoned house or like a, a broken down house that he's very clearly kind of like renovated for himself. He's very capable, but we also get to see him like pursuing Sheeta as she's dragged around from one place to another by one set of villains after another. And he's very capable, you know, he's very independent. He's very fierce, but he's characterized as a small child, you know, his, his doggedness uh, and his simplicity of, of kind of, belief and action just all codes like a small child to me and so does sort of the voices in the mm-hmm. the english dub i mean there's no hint of uh adolescence i think in either of those voices they sound like little kids i mean well, I'm, I'm not sitting here trying to argue that they're they're adults and we should read them as adults i, th- I find it more interesting that there is a, a sense of ambiguity because there's a sense of ambiguity about a lot of the specifics of the time and place and whether time even works the same way in, yeah. in this place we are you know or if secondary sex characteristics work the same in this world <laughs> i mean there is sort of the question of where all those large adult pirates come from uh <laughs> dola has this this guy that's her mechanic uh, that also kind of looks like a tezuka character he's this like a uh, short little man with with coke bottle glasses and a giant bristling mustache um and at least in the the translation i saw the old disney translation he's referred to as pops which mm-hmm. could mean like he is actually all of those pirates father uh, and that he's dola's husband or it could just be like your generic like hey pops you know the, the kind of name that you give to any like random ass uncle uh in your giant extended weird pirate family but <laughs> if you if you decide all that got the, one <laughs> it, well we all want one now <laughs> at least if you decide that Dola and Pops are a couple and they, they produce those eight kids, it, it just raises so many questions. <laughs> it's like uh, it's like spider level sexual dimorphism in terms of uh, like physical size and, and overall personality. I feel like we've gone down some rabbit holes here. We've definitely gone down some rabbit holes. Let's let's talk about. I did I did not expect to be talking about secondary sex characteristics on this podcast. Um, uh, I guess you could say Anna Paquin would have been four years older. It would have been four years after the piano when Mm -hmm. she did the dub for this. So for for whatever that's worth, which would make her what twelve? Wasn't she eight for the piano? Yeah, I guess so. She would have been still pretty young. At the time, she was the youngest uh, Oscar nominee of all time, I believe. Winner, yeah. That's the nominee the, and winner, or just or just winner. Uh, I think nominee. Mm. 
but mm. that's his maybe. We're uh, again pretty far <laughs> off uh, off the mark. We should talk at least a little bit about the animation here. The, you know, there's a, a a pretty wide range of imagery in this movie, like ranging from these the, the incredibly a lavish painted uh, backdrops of uh, Lapid of the City in the Sky itself uh, to just some very, very cartoony action. What do you think about the animation? What stands out for you here? Well, the colors for one. I mean, it's it's really striking looking in, in that sense too. But I, I was I maybe it's because I'm I I don't have a great sense of what anime was like in the seventies. Like I know I I know Speed Racer, and I know Miyazaki is kind of like the person who set the tone and look of uh, and Ghibli in general uh, for for the eighties. But um, you know maybe you know you know more about this than I do, Tasha. What what makes this stand out from what else was coming out at the time, and how does it differ from what is the missing link between uh, the sixty uh, stuff and, and this? I mean, I don't think of Miyazaki as as that much of like the father of the look of anime at all. I, I think that rests pretty squarely with Osama Tezuka. Yeah, okay. uh, you know more about this than I do, so go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, wow, I'm. I, well, well, okay. I've done, I've, I've done a lot of writing about this, but it's been a long time. Genevieve? Well, that's uh, interesting that you bring that up because I think literally my only other reference point or my, my only pre-Ghibli reference point for like Japanese feature animation is Unico, specifically Unico and the Island of Magic, which mm. <laughs> Ta- Tasha, Tasha is laughing because years and years ago, there was an Ask the AV Club column where people would write in basically trying to ask us to help them remember things they saw from their childhood. And like one in five, it wasn't, letters. It wasn't set up as such. It just turned <laughs> into that. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. like one, one in five letters was basically about Unico and the Island of Magic, which I think played <laughs> on the Disney Channel in the early '80s. I think that's probably where I saw it. And yeah, it's, it's to this day, it's unclear if by, by the end of that, by the time we had like three or so of those, I think people were trolling us, like actively <laughs> picking scenes from Unico and writing in, "Hey, does anybody remember what this is?" Because uh, every time it turned out to be Unico, I would promise I was going to watch. Unico and I still have it. <laughs> I, I, for some reason, own two copies of it, so maybe I'll send you, send you mine. But that's a Tezuka character, right? According Oof. to the, the Wikipedia page I just pulled up, it is. <laughs> well, there you go. I Again, uh, I know as little as possible about it. Uh, Tezuka, <laughs> to me, like I know him from, from Astro Boy. I know him mm-hmm. from um, some later like long-form, sophisticated uh, manga stuff that I, I have on my shelf. I know him from uh, I can't remember the the Japanese title for it, but it was basically the Jungle King. It was the the animal story that became Kimba the White Lion in the U.S. Um, and if you look at the kind of the design for that, like that's your that's your missing link. Mm-hmm. That's your mm-hmm. where was uh, like kids anime at the time and Kimba the White Lion. Like I loved that uh, as a as a kid. It was one of those older cartoons that came on at like 5 30 in the morning in the we paid almost nothing for the for access to this uh kind of saturday morning shows um but it was basically this this very big-eyed big-headed big-eared uh simple line drawing uh lion that rushed around in the jungle solving disputes between animals and and dealing with incursions into the wild and it was i mean it was fascinating to me because it wasn't really about people it was about like the the existence of some very very cartoony animals but the animation style there i mean it was influential it was so influential and in, in so early that it was actually a huge influence on Miyazaki himself um one of our our Ghibli week 
stories was specifically about the relationship there and how Miyazaki came to a point in his career where he realized that Tezuka had influenced him so much that he didn't feel he had a style of his own. And he mm. he just gathered up a whole bunch of his artwork and burned it because he said, like, I've got to start from scratch. I've got to start from from general principles if I'm ever going to develop my own style and not just be copying him. That's really interesting to hear because I to go back to Unicorn and the Island of Magic, the last act of that movie takes place in uh, a castle made out of living puppets, which are basically just people that have been turned into little like black people who are bricks in this castle. And it's it's very creepy. And there's a roller dragon robot that is very creepy. But there's these elements that I felt like I was seeing echoed in Castle in the Sky. And I, I'm not suggesting that Miyazaki was referencing this like second in a series of three movies <laughs> uh, about a magical unicorn. But it made me wonder if these are visual tropes that are more prevalent in Japanese animation that we were seeing play out there. It could just be uh, like a recurring uh, – Suzuki had a lot of recurring images, like a lot of uh, stylistic like character types that he returned to over and over and like kinds of action and kinds of humor. And not to say that he was derivative of himself because I, like one of his – if you, you read a lot of his stuff, one of the things that's most amazing is how he would he'd build these very predictable dynamics of – uh, like a lush, incredibly complicated background and these mm-hmm. incredibly simple foreground figures, uh, like navigating a sort of like Tintin like landscape where everything is like very, very politically complicated. And yet at the same time, like, like outsized and slapstick and cartoony. So they were both very accessible to children and like fun for adults. The, the stories would unfold in a Scheherazade type way where there was kind of always another layer to be dug into. Uh, he was just, he was a master of world building. So it wouldn't surprise me at all if there were sort of visual motifs um, that this is particularly drawing from that were kind of recurring images without it being this one specific image. Mm-hmm. But I think only Miyazaki could tell you that. <laughs> and he probably wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> from what I from what I know of him. <laughs> no, probably not, given how much he worked to um, exercise Tezuka from his style. Although now I suddenly think I've been saying Suzuki rather than <laughs> Suzuko. Maybe we should move on uh, before I, I dig myself in even deeper. Well, we're as as so often is the case, like we we know it's time to shift subjects because we're narrowing down to some very, very specific things. We always mean to keep these discussions like more general and top view. Uh, and then we always like funnel down to smaller and smaller points. So in order to open it back up again. Um, we, we know that we're going to have a lot more to say about Ghibli's movies in general and how they speak to each other and how Miyazaki developed and uh, the, the running themes in his work. But in the same way we kind of channeled this conversation into a modified version of our usual dynamic, we're going to channel all of our further recommendations and discussions into a modified version of our normal recommendation segment. So we'll talk about our favorite Ghibli movies and our favorite starting points for the catalog after this. Normally, this is where we'd talk about what we've been watching lately and would recommend films or film-related items in a segment we call Your Next Picture Show. But this week, we're approaching that from a Ghibli direction. 
asking everybody to bring in their favorite Ghibli movie and explain why they recommend it. And then we're probably just going to generally talk about them because that's what we do. Uh, Keith, you want to kick us off here? So I, I mentioned earlier that I think Spirited Away is is, is Miyazaki's best film, uh, and I'm not going to stray from that. And I, and I think a sentimental favorite of mine is My Neighbor Totoro, which was the first I saw. And certainly, I think it's the first one we showed our kid when she was, you know, uh, young and just the right age for it, because I, th- I think that's a film that plays really well for for little kids. And I suppose we'll, we'll probably touch on both of those later. But but um, a real favorite of mine is Kiki's Delivery Service. Uh, it was one of the earliest ones I saw, and I think it really combines some. Uh, I'd seen Totoro at that point, and now having seen Castle in the Sky, uh, it really does feel like a synthesis of that kind of you know, deep investment in characters and storytelling with a sort of elaborate world building and, uh, you know, a w- wonder of technology. And, and as I mentioned before, it's this wonderful ability to sense, uh, create a sense of an actual working culture that integrates all these amazing elements from different parts of history and different parts of the world into this this world unto itself. Um, so I'm, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of that one, but I also find it really moving. And it's not the kind of story you nor it's not it's a coming of age story but it's not the kind you normally see i mean uh, um there's the story is, is about kiki who's kind of set off to live by her parents to live on her own which which is itself kind of a, a nothing you don't see that very often but it plays out really well i mean it kind of captures the the terror of what it means to leave home for the first time but it's, it also has this real gentleness to it and there's conflict but as as we mentioned before it's just, it's definitely a film without villains and and again i um i should at some point watch the subtitled versions but i know the disney dub so well and i think kirsten dunst and phil hartman and janine garofalo especially are, are such standout performances in those that I, I just think of those characters as having those voices like janine garofalo is the as the you know slightly um and disaffected it's not the right word but certainly the, the the sort of the cool role model that that uh that kiki uh aspires to be is um perfectly cast and i don't know i'm I'm a, I'm a big fan of that one i i, I want to know who isn't I, I will i will i challenge you to tell me why that's not a great movie scott <laughs> I'm, I, I'm not going to challenge you I, and i had a, i have a similar experience with the, with the dub of that um, mm-hmm. um phil hartman is the the cat in particular just makes me laugh quite a bit and it is kind of i mean there are certain elements of it that are familiar and that it is um children's animated films are certainly not short of you know coming of age stories and mm-hmm. and this is this is about a girl who's kind of finding herself and figuring out where her power lies and what kind of person she is and so all, all of that plays and is, is very accessible um and as uh, you know as we move into the more into this discussion about uh, our recommendations that is kind of in my mind a little bit is that accessibility thinking about these films as like a child and as, as a grown-up and like what where do you what are your entry points going to be and what kind of movies do you want to see first and what time ideally in your life would you want to encounter each of these movies I've been thinking about that a lot lately. Well, I mean, we showed it to our, our kid um, not long after Totoro because Totoro went so well. And she was really, I mean, she was quite young, I think four or five. And and she was uh, kind of really startled by the idea that, that you know, these parents would send their daughter off to live on their own. But in a way that I felt like was appropriate, it kind of got her thinking about that as as a possibility, not the worst thing our kid off now <laughs> to live on her own. <laughs> at some point, I, ideally, we will, you know. And 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 like, I think he's really good um, at capturing these sort of this, these cycles of life and and being accepting of, of them. 
Well, softening the fact that you know things change and, and there's loss and sadness and uh, in the world is part of is part of living. Kiki has never been one of my favorites, and I think it's because of the order that I encountered uh, these movies in. Like, I I just I don't think it's as as pure and joyous and fantastical and, and wild as my neighbor Totoro. Uh, which I encountered earlier, and it's certainly not as as dark and challenging and different as Princess Mononoke. Um, but I saw it like after those two, and it didn't stack up in comparison. And as a result, I haven't revisited it enough. Like I haven't watched it again, having seen so many other Ghibli movies, and I'm really kind of long overdue for that. But what always struck me about it was just the the fascination of a story where effectively the the villain, the enemy, is loneliness. And Mm. the disaffection that comes with having friends, but feeling that you haven't really fully connected with them. Because Kiki isn't like isn't lacking for companionship she isn't lacking for people to relate to or even people who treat her in a friendly way or or want her in their lives she's just having problems relating to them she's having problems feeling that she is where she belongs and and kind of understanding who she is and who she needs to be and she kind of falls into a depressive slump and it it feels like she's going through adolescence. She's experiencing big emotions that she doesn't know what to do with exactly. And that it just seems so well observed, but so ridiculously daring for a movie to make that the big central conflict. I guess this is the time where I admit I, Kiki's is one that I haven't seen. Oh, you'll, so, you'll love it. Oh, wow. You'll love it. Like it. Yeah. Well, it's on HBO my, Max. I, I know. Well, <laughs> I, it's interesting because I, I feel like well, I think I already said this, my Ghibli viewing skews uh, more away from the sort of younger, for lack of a better term. Um, And uh, I was going to try and get through this whole episode without admitting this, but I also haven't seen Totoro. Um, So yeah, those are the those are like the real big holes that I'm looking very forward to filling because Castle on the Sky kind of put me in the mindset of wanting to like delve deeper into that arm of Ghibli because the arm of Ghibli I am more familiar with is the one informed by my first Ghibli film, which uh, is Princess Mononoke and was the one I was going to talk about. But we can finish talking about Kiki's first if this anyone has anything else left to say. I, I mean, I think this can all, you know, melt from, from one to the other, <laughs> it, like like some sort of Ghibli villain or something. Um, I will say, if you haven't seen those two, I'd, I'd watch Kiki's first, because oh, I, I, again, I, I think Tortoro is the better movie. But I also just think, like, watch, wait and watch Kiki the next time you're feeling just depressed and overwhelmed. Oh, so now, tonight, the next time, tomorrow? <laughs> Tonight, right now, if you want a piece out of this podcast, watch it and come back. Uh, we well, we could still be talking. There's, there's, there's a lot to cover. But yeah, it, like, you know, anytime that you're feeling overwhelmed or just like kind of weighed down by the world or, I don't know, like sealed into a home and unable to see your friends and thus feeling emotionally and socially distant from them. Like, it's a really good movie for addressing all those feelings. They're all Tortoro, on the other hand. They're, they're all good for that. Yeah, Toro, on the other hand, is just pure, unadulterated joy. But we'll get to that. Why don't we talk about Princess Mononoke first? Not pure, unadulterated joy. <laughs> no, no. And uh, kind of like continuing the theme of accessibility based on where you are in your life when you first experienced Ghibli. I saw Princess Mononoke in the theater uh, during the, I think it was the 2000, the- they-, they released it in-, in-, in theaters with the the 
dub. I think they also did a sub. In my in my mind, I saw the subtitled version in the theater, but I think I probably saw the dubbed version. I but it, it, you know, we'll just let my memory have that. But I was a a teenager. I was like 16, 17. I had just like been starting to dip my toes into anime. Um, I was briefly a member of the, my high school's anime club, <laughs> you know. So, so Mononoke like coming out in theaters was a was a big deal, you know. And it was like I drove a half hour to go to the art house theater to see it. And it's such a naughty and narratively complex and morally complex film that encountering it at that point in my life where most of my frame of reference for animation was Disney and Western animation and just a very different mode of storytelling. Mononoke just really blew me away. Just like, oh, this is like an entirely different way that animated movies can be, you know, and the two things have always stuck with me about it. I, I revisited it for this podcast. And yes, it's still very, very good. I can, I can see where people could pick out flaws. And it is not necessarily the Ghibli movie I would recommend people seek out right now if it doesn't already sound like something they would be interested in. But the two things that always stick out to me are the opening sequence with the boar that's been that has the bullet lodged in it and is just basically engulfed in these undulating worm things. It's 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 terrifying. It's a terrifying opening, and I think it maybe like inured me to some of the more uh, squicky uh, Ghibli imagery <laughs> through, 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 throughout uh, the the filmography that that I encountered in, in subsequent movies. Like nothing reaches the level of that opening sequence, and and honestly, the the climax of Mononoke. Too. It's very squirmy for me anyway. And I imagine for little kids, this is not a uh, introduce your kids to, to Ghibli film by, no, by this, any means. This was a, a failed family movie night. Uh, we, we got past the boar. I, I had not seen this since it was in American theaters, um, you know, 20 years, I guess, before I tried to show it on family movie night. I'm like, guys, this is PG-13, so it's going to be a little more intense than like Totoro. And then, but like, you know, my kids seen... <laughs> The Marvel movies, other PG thirteen movies, and like we we get past the boar, sort of barely, but you know <laughs> it's fine. Uh, then we get to the beheadings, and like, oh, this is this isn't working at all. Yeah, yeah it's, it's it's definitely violent. <laughs> yeah, there's but, some very early limb loss, as I recall. Mm, early, yes, uh, quite. yeah, yeah, like double double arm. Uh, yes, I think Star Warsization is the term for that. <laughs> sudden <laughs> sudden explosive uh, severing of limbs. Yes, well, arms specifically. <laughs> But the other thing, other than the violence, <laughs> Scott's beloved violence, that uh, sticks out to me <laughs> is the the villain, uh, Lady Eboshi, who is. I'm sure arguments could be made for more complex villains throughout uh, Ghibli's filmography, but I just find her fascinating and just really indicative of the film's eagerness to explore the morality of humanity's relationship with the natural world. Lady Eboshi is the founder lady of Irontown and is basically she is the reason that the spirit world is an upheaval, which is sort of the the framing of the movie. And she is actively trying to kill the, these these spirits for for reasons. But She's also a woman who's created a place for uh, sex workers to earn a living and be protected from from men. And she's a woman who has given uh, 
shelter and and purpose to lepers and she has created a sort of utopia like if you squint you could think of it as as a utopia but she has done it at great expense and at great cost so i just find her as a character to i mean she's not the main character but she is what sticks out to me most when i think of mononoke that character in particular, like a lot of people have hesitated even to call her a villain. Yeah. And like, she's she's certainly closer to it than most Ghibli films have. But she's, I think, the primary reason that people ask Miyazaki in interviews, uh, like a lot of George R. R. Martin questions, you know, mm-hmm. like, why, why are your villains so complex? Why don't you believe in black and white? Who's the good guy in here? And who's the bad guy? What are you trying to say about morality? Like, all these questions that are really, really familiar from people interviewing Martin about Game of Thrones, Miyazaki got them first because of characters <laughs> like this, just yeah. like... Uh, there's a clip of um, John Lasseter interviewing Miyazaki for uh, when when Miyazaki won a, a special achievement Oscar, where he asks this question, and Miyazaki's just basically like, "Yeah, you know, I create a villain, and then I come to sympathize with them. Like, mm-hmm. I like them. I I think the villains work really. I'm very very paraphrasing here, but uh, he talks about the old Superman Fleischer Brothers uh, cartoons and how there's a villain in that who's like built an entire secret base like under the Hollywood Hills, and he. He's like, anybody who works that hard is lovable, like deserves sympathy. <laughs> yeah. The villains work so much harder than the the good guys do. So like, I think fundamentally, he just he wants to see things as, as much more pluralistic and uh, complicated than hero villain, yeah. which, you know, is an exciting thing for somebody raised on Disney cartoons and just like American media in general, where things tend to be very, very black and white. Yeah, it definitely blew me away uh in in 2000 and uh i i think uh, as i've mentioned a couple times sort of colored my perception of of what studio ghibli did for for a long time and i'm still sort of uh filling out that perception um and speaking of which uh let's talk about a movie i haven't seen scott <laughs> uh yeah well so so um i i wanted to talk about uh, my neighbor totoro that was it was the first it was my first Ghibli film, um, and uh, it was a movie that I heard about first from an episode of Siskel and Ebert. It was a split decision on My Neighbor Totoro, which is just insane to think about. But I remember looking at, but they were showing like the the cat bus sequence, like the mm-hmm. the, the really famous. You know, one of the great sequences in. in I've the, even seen the cat bus sequence. I right, <laughs> absolutely stunning, and 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 they were showing that as like a clip. It was like, holy crap, this looks incredible! Like, I mean, I don't know whether you know they, they seem to you know lukewarm on it, but like just watching that, it was like this is this looks pretty amazing. So, uh, so I checked it out and, and found it uh, to be quite remarkable. But but it was it stands out to me personally as um it's just an extremely special film as a parent because it was my uh my now 12 year old daughter uh when she we showed it to her when she was maybe 3 or 4 and it, it and it was her favorite movie period and for for ah. uh, for uh, it, it, she doesn't it, she, she saw it early enough to where she doesn't even remember now but it really kind of the fact that she embraced it so much at that age speaks to kind of a the uniqueness i guess of the language in which this movie the, the uniqueness of which miyazaki sort of operates in this in this film because it really is much more abstract than what she was being exposed to from something like disney which would give you a pretty traditional 
narrative um you're, you're having to you know it has a cat bus and it has totoro and it has a lot of interesting things going on with 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 nature and it and uh it's really sophisticated but it's also i think at a at a really young age your mind is not, you're still developing and, and you're able to kind of readily accept um you know dream logic or abstraction in a way that a more calcified brain you know might might resist and um and so to kind of experience the film um in that context and through her eyes and her enthusiasm made it all the more special to me um but um yeah i mean this is this is certainly right up there among my favorites um genevieve i think you're gonna like it quite a bit <laughs> uh and so so uh so you'll want to want to check it out soon but i don't know what to say i mean it's got you know it, the cat bus is a, is a standout but, it, but it's also you know it's about moving to a new place and making some difficult adjustments and and um and finding a new friend <laughs> and um you know it's about uh you know being a good being siblings which is another thing that that uh was resonant with me as a as a father of two yeah i just i i I love it it's uh it's kind of a perfect movie so one of the other things i unearthed when i was doing ghibli week research was that miyazaki's mother uh, was uh had tuberculosis Mm -hmm. and spent uh, a large part of his childhood in the hospital Mm -hmm. um apparently nine years in and out of hospitals as he was growing up and that's very strongly reflected here as the two little girls deal with the fact that their their mother is away and her health keeps turning for the worse and they're not really in on the story exactly they they know that they're getting kind of a ghost of the story that uh, the adults are getting and they don't always know what they're what they don't know or how to translate what they do know and that also became one of Miyazaki's big themes, you know, his his movies are just fascinated with disease, the the disease curse that's spreading and and killing people and and animals in Princess Mononoke or just like everything uh, that gets cursed and diseased and and rotting in spirited away. Um Howl and Howl's Moving Castle uh has basically his magic is becoming a disease for him like uh with a lot of these movies greed um, or desire for power becomes a form of disease that that takes on disease-like aspects. And this movie like turns it into a children's story, like turns it into the kind of sort of distant echo of, you know, something's wrong and you know that you're not getting the full story and you know that adults are dealing with something much bigger than you are, but you still have to go off and be a kid sometimes. And I, there's just there's so many aspects of Tortoro that are just so finely emotionally tuned that, mm. that feel so authentically like childhood. I think seeing it for the first time, that was what struck me more than anything, just because, again, I was used to having the experience of childhood fed back to me in a very like heightened and brightened false cartoony kind of way um from a lot of american media both both animated and like even more so with like disney live action features where the kids were all like sort of creepily like bright and precocious and loud and the way may feels like a real four-year-old here i think is just remarkable Mm -hmm. you know and her her little like storms of 
emotion of like joy and excitement and sulky petulance and how cranky she gets when she's tired and how easily she's delighted when something unexpected happens. These kids just feel so much like kids to me. The other thing too, that you, now that you mentioned it, Tasha, is that this film and, and, and Ponyo and Kiki's delivery service. I mean, these are films about, um, you know, a, a single parent who was kind of in charge, right? I mean, like, not single, but it was single parent, a couple of them, but just like the idea of kids who, who are not, don't have helicopter parents, who, 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 who don't, don't have eyes on them all the time and who have to kind of find their way out into the world and, and discover things on their own and maybe, you know, go outside of the, the bounds that, that a more attentive parent or, or would allow them to, to, to go. Um, and so that feeling of discovery and danger um, is a part of these movies too I think that also applies to your pick Tasha <laughs> in terms of yeah it, yeah right and of course and of course Wait, you, miss- you, and of course your, your pick your the parents uh, disappear at a certain point right <laughs> pretty early yeah uh, spirited away I, I just I have to talk about it I'm kind of obsessed with spirit away I wrote a gigantic piece about it at the dissolve that's still knock on wood uh, available on the internets and some movie of the week. Be- we did a few huh? things it was a movie of the week we did a few things on it. Yeah, we did a bunch. Um, but like this was, this is one of the cases where I just like obsessively delved into one aspect of a film I was fascinated with. And, uh, you know, it was, it was the kind of like film scholar thing that we could do at the dissolve that we <laughs> often couldn't do anywhere else. It's just like, like chase that obsession. Um, in this case, just the, the degree to which fluid <laughs> is a thing in that movie. Uh, Spirited Away is about a young girl who's, again, uh, her family is moving to a new place and much like in Tortoro. And again, she's disaffected and feeling very separated from her friends, as in, as with Kiki. And she's falling into a depression, as with Kiki. And then her parents get turned into pigs and she gets stuck in the spirit world and, and has to work her way out. As with Mononoke? Kinda. <laughs> I just want I just want to link yours to all three of, of ours. <laughs> I mean, to some degree, like uh, Ashitaka does kind of get like hauled into a spirit world that he did not sign up for. Yeah. That he has to kind of fight his way, earn his way back out of. Yep. So yeah, for sure. But uh this movie, like also I think gets at some of the feelings of, of childhood, like the the stormy uh, sudden petulance of a uh, teenage, like tween age slash teenage uh, life and that feeling that nobody understands you and the the kind of like grumpy petulance of uh, having to work uh, when like having any kind of chores just feels like the biggest labor and then <laughs> suddenly being thrust into a much bigger world where everything depends on you like that is kind of the nut of a lot of child films mm-hmm. is like the adults can't be relied on so the kid has to save the day uh, but in this case it's just so threatening and so overwhelming and and terrifying and the movie really lets you feel that like it's it's not a fun romp through being the the one who has to save the day and be brave it's really authentically frightening and that makes it even more exciting and uplifting when the uh, the main character like bit by bit finds her spine and like learns to navigate the things that make her afraid because she's navigating them for somebody else. You know, she's, she's trying to help other people. I don't even 
in some ways know where to start about this movie because I'm so fascinated with every aspect of it. It's another kind of misshapen episodic story that goes from chapter to chapter. And there are through lines about kind of the fairy tale importance of being kind to strangers and uh, being like open and, and honest and good natured and good hearted. But I, there are so many different weird moving pieces to it. And so many of them are just these incredibly busy Rococo kind of uh, sequences. And the animation is so unbelievably like mm-hmm. lush and, and heavy and detailed. I just, I, I feel like you could write so many dissertations about so many different aspects of this movie. It's so unbelievably rich. But it's a movie that, that builds up in complexity and builds up in complexity and like loudness and, and visual noise and gunkiness and grossness and terror. And then it all washes away and simplifies down to this one very quiet lyrical sequence. That's one of Ghibli's best sequences of all time, I think. You're speaking of the train. I'm speaking of the train. Although, yeah. you know, something for another mode of conveyance. <laughs> We've got a cat bus, got a dream train. <laughs> yeah, actually, um, one of the I could I could I could keep coming back to a Ghibli week at Polygon all day because it's still very fresh for me, and I was really really proud of uh, some of the the pretty smart insight that people brought to my fascination with Ghibli movies. Um, but Monica Castillo is a uh, a critic for RogerEbert.com and a, a lot of other places. Um, who I've spent a bunch of time with at film festivals. She's uh, just really incisive and uh, a very sharp uh, writer, wrote a piece for us about transportation in Ghibli Mm -hmm. and about how obsessed um, Miyazaki in particular is with it, but how it's very often used to kind of explore these between times, you know, the, the beat between one big thing and another big thing um, and how it's often kind of like a reset, a reset of tension, a reset of stakes, a reset of story energy. It's kind of used as this like transition point between the great overwhelming thing and the next great overwhelming thing. And that's certainly true here. I didn't want to talk about Spirited Away because I knew like you you had your claim on spirited away so, but like if we had to actually like if this was actually our favorite ghibli movie it would obviously be spirited away away you know but yeah. um so i kind of took the directive to be more sort of our entry point to ghibli but um you know seeing it after princess mononoke you know i kind of already mentioned it but the you know the sort of gross fluid aspects of spirited away i feel probably would have thrown me a lot more if i hadn't already experienced mononoke because they're you know and also like the the little sprites the little coal sprites in 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 spirited (laughs) away you know there's also there's so much creepier uh forest sprites in in uh mononoke mononoke too so uh i I definitely feel like because uh mononoke was like three years before spirited away four maybe so i i feel like you can definitely kind of see the uh, some some transition points between those those two movies. <laughs> I love when the Cole Sprites decide uh, decide by observing her that they don't have to carry the coal anymore, and so they just collapse under the coal for a while. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, this is the one I just I mean I just saw it um, um, a few days ago uh, for uh, w- with uh, the family, and uh, it's just so 
mesmerizing. The thing just flows beautifully from the from the start. There's just and uh, you know it's a long film. It doesn't feel long. Um, it, All of these uh, movies may, are pretty long for maybe for epis- kids movies. Maybe episodic, <laughs> but it's not like. It's, it's but but there's you don't feel like you're getting jerked around it's just everything's everything moves uh, you know whatever those episodes might be they segue into the next thing very nicely and um and uh yeah i mean i just i i i love it and i think it all is it's animated by this kindness and generosity and and humility and um you know a kind of a, a i mean there's all these like qualities that the film champions as being you know world saving qualities as somebody is this this girl who comes into this scary place not knowing anything about how it works and we're learning right along with her how what this strange place is that there's a bathhouse for the spirit for spirits of all kinds um Even but really the, gross but ones really gross including one extremely <laughs> gross of them. i mean there's an entire bucket of giant ducklings for some reason <laughs> yeah there's no, the, the the I naked radish spirit i love the i love no, the <laughs> The giant ducklings are, are are amazing, but I don't know. It, it just I don't know. It, you know, her her kindness and her bravery. I mean, it's just the it, it's just touching. It's touching to watch. You know, um, you know, and just uh, your, your sense of self sacrifice and and wanting to help others. I mean, it's a it's a very wholesome <laughs> film in certain res- in that respect. In in a, in a film that that uh, uh, from a values perspective is um, wins you over right along with just being a stunning piece of art. One thing I want I want to I want to touch on before we we leave the topic is I love having these movies on a streaming service uh, at a you know push of a button. Although I have a lot of these on disc um you know, which which look great, but I really do like that G Kids has had this annual tradition. Of course everything's up in the air now with theater clo- theaters closed for the coronavirus, but I love this annual tradition of of presenting them on a weekly basis in theaters um it's, it's it's been lovely to get a chance to see some of these um as a, you know in theaters um uh, we saw totoro at the music this was a, a different uh presentation where we saw totoro at the music box and it was uh such a wonderful mix of, of parents and kids and just you know f- you know people who like studio ghibli movies and there was this one group of i'm probably 18 19 year old uh college age women who clearly this is the film they'd grown up on growing up watching and we're seeing it for the first time in the theater it was just and they were just excited and and knew you could tell they knew every beat of it and it was it was just a wonderful thing to to witness and i I love that this animation style that's very different this storytelling style that's very different than than what we're used to in the west is just so winning and gets you on its wavelength um so easily because it's such so well done and, and touches on such universal themes uh, I I love to see that becoming a tradition, like a theater going, I think film going tradition, and and just sort of a uh, these are the films you watch when you're growing up. If you want to, if you want to show your kids great, you know, if you want to show your kids great movies, these are the ones you show them. I I I love to see that happen over the last couple of decades, and and you couldn't necessarily have predicted that because um, foreign film animation or other, foreign films animation or otherwise uh, tend to be on the margins of of American viewing. Um, one other thing I just wanted to acknowledge before we wrap up is that we have only talked about Miyazaki films uh, here, right. and uh, Ghibli is not just Hayao Miyazaki. It, it's several directors, but the other one uh, who we mentioned is Isao Takahata, um, who has made several great films, um, none of which we talked about at length, and I don't think we have the time to do it, but does anyone just want to 
give a shout out to any non Miyazakis real quick? I'll I'll give a specific shout out to uh, possibly the least challenging of them. I I find like his his more uh, stylistically experimental films like uh, The Tale of Princess Kaguya mm-hmm. and My Neighbors the Yamadas. I find harder to get into like i respect them on a technical level and on a storytelling level but i just don't feel like the emotional attachment to them that i do to miyazaki's films Mm -hmm. but he directed this one movie called pompoko (laughs) i knew it was going to be pompoko (laughs) how how could it not be it's about it's about a bunch of tanuki um which people call them raccoons or raccoon dogs uh for lack of a a good translation but it's a very specific animal species that that lives in japan and they have a reputation as being trickster gods like uh foxes or cats and they're supposed to be shapeshifters um they're usually depicted with gigantic testicles um, because they're sort of fertility gods and sort of like hedonistic uh, trickster gods. They like to drink, they like to fool people, um, and they change shape. So the story is about a little group of Tanuki who are being driven out of their home uh, by human expansionism and industrialism. And they kind of try to find a way to to make the humans relent. And it, it very deliberately, very consciously snaps back and forth from this like opening of Watership Down-esque like photorealism views of of nature and these animals to this extremely rounded like cartoony style and it, it goes back and forth throughout like reminding us this is a fun story oh but it's it's a very really oh but it's these are very real issues you know the the lives of these animals matter and it's just very difficult to see the the wilds disappearing it's a very miyazaki film but it's also a, a big, colorful, crazy one um, because they're shapeshifters and they, they try to use their shapeshifting to to save themselves and to, to bring humanity to a better awareness of them. Um, and they try all of these uh, strange little tricks and eventually they, they literally put on a show uh, trying to, to make humanity see what, what it's doing to them. And it's... Like when I first saw it, uh, I I thought this is never going to come to America. Uh, American audiences are just never going. D- Disney is never going to release a movie where all of the characters have visible testicles. Um, I mean, they're just they're running around with their nads hanging out, and it's a traditional uh, depiction. Like they they're there for a reason, but you know, for American audiences, who are very squeamish about bodies and about nudity, if not about violence. Uh, it's it's a much harder sell. And then they transform, they use their transforming power to turn their testicles into rugs and, and riding beasts and parachutes. And it's it's an odd film. Now, how and, how how realistic is this? Uh, <laughs> Does this actually happen? I mean, yeah, but you're not, you know, it's, it's kind of like the mating habits of great white sharks. Like, we know it's all real, but you're not very likely to see it or catch it on film. Sure. Because uh, it's, it's all done, like, off in the wilds in places we don't go. But yeah, it's, it's basically a nature documentary, Keith. <laughs> um, speaking of Ghibli films that Disney is not going to release, the other big Takahata one, which I briefly mentioned, is Grave of the Fireflies, which I don't think ever had a U.S. release. I could be wrong there. In theaters or yeah. Uh, no, yeah, no, I know. I was at the video store when I worked at the video store. Yeah, so. yeah. But- I, I saw it in a theater in America, okay. but that was it was an art house, right. uh, like one off kind of kind of special viewing. Yeah, but you um, know, I don't think it had like a wide Disney style release. Yeah, but you know, watching children slowly dying of starvation in the aftermath of World War II fire bombing is you know probably a harder sell for for Disney. 
Uh, <laughs> or, this is or HBO any. Max, though. Yeah, yeah, I know. So, but is 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 but, it on HBO Max or is Hulu Hulu, no, Hulu still have Hulu. the the rights there? Yeah, um, it's a it's a good film. It's one that I can't really recommend to people unless you're like just really feeling like some misery right now. But if if you are, it's great for that. I mean, it's heartbreaking, but yeah. it is it beautifully realized. Mm-hmm. You know, the the action is very vivid and the characterization, again, is uh, just very, very high quality. Um, there's a little girl in it that is way too much like May in Tortoro, mm-hmm. and like watching her suffering and starving is not an easy thing to watch. But in the same sort of way, she's just the way she's characterized is so real and so recognizable and so true to childhood. Like this is a... A heartbreaking movie because these kids feel like actual children. Yeah. Yeah. You know, navigating uh, the just like a a terrible time in history um, and representing a whole like lost generation. Well, on that happy note. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a super downer way to go out. Maybe that's how we do it here at the next picture show. (laughs) (sighs) Maybe just in an effort to. Oh, so well. Again, I don't want to go on and on about Ghibli Week, except uh, that I learned so much from it. You know, I learned so much from these really smart writers going out and uh, challenging themselves to find new things about Ghibli. And the the essay that we did about Takahata and his his like relentless risk taking, um, I think, was a really a smart and incisive look into like into his history and into his motivations and into why it would take him eight years to make a film like he was even more of a perfectionist than Miyazaki. So I highly recommend that if you're looking for more insight into like Takahata as a person. Um, he's just he's so much less publicized than Miyazaki mm. because his films were more challenging and he didn't have as much of, of a like a signature visual or narrative style as Miyazaki. It wasn't it was never as easy to get into his films or to track the the specific fascinations he had. Um, but he was a really strongly individualistic creator. And like that's that's the kind of thing we love around here. I think our listeners should just check out the entire studio ghibli package on polygon uh because uh, you know it's a it's not just simply a collection of 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 essays which with plenty 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 of those but also a a broad contextualization and history uh of the studio as well so it's so it gives you gives you you know the big picture as well as a lot of uh smaller uh, you know, more idiosyncratic uh, pieces as well. And I think it's uh, it's a masterpiece, Tasha. You not you? I thought you I thought you really knocked it out of the park. And and I think it's one of those one of those things that can be there and that that uh, readers can access as they continue to kind of catch up with uh, and learn about uh, Ghibli films. It's just going to be there for people to see. Thank you, Scott. I appreciate that. And in the same spirit, I encourage people through whatever form of access they have in their uh, hometowns, home countries, um, to dig like deep into the Ghibli catalog and, and watch as many of these films as possible. Um, you may want to save your, your Might Ever Tortoros and your Spirited Aways uh, either for last or for a rewatch. Um, but it's just really rewarding digging into the full catalog and just seeing the incredible range of styles and storytelling and, and topics and tones and uh, animation styles and experiments on offer there. Uh, you can find these films on DVD and Blu-ray from G kids uh, for digital purchase or rental at the usual outlets on HBO max in the United States or on Netflix outside the States. 
So that's it for this special one-off edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next pairing will come out June 23rd and 30th. Uh, Scott, what is coming up next? The new Spike Lee Vietnam epic, To Five Bloods, premiered on Netflix this month. And like many Spike Lee joints, it's full of references to history, culture, and, of course, the movies, including Apocalypse Now, Kelly's Heroes, Platoon, and The Seven Samurai. But its story about four Vietnam veterans who returned to the country in search of a fortune in buried gold most strongly recalls John Huston's 1948 adventure, Treasure of the Sierra Madre. On our next pair of episodes, we'll compare and contrast Treasure of the Sierra Madre and Five Bloods and look at how greed and suspicion caused the bond between men to fray. Five Bloods is on Netflix, and if you can figure out whether or not you have HBO Max, the Treasure of Sierra Madre is on there now, too. Please join us. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Studio Ghibli's work and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773 773- Two three four nine seven three zero, or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may post your response on Facebook for discussion or read it on a future episode of the show. Finally, before we close out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Genevieve. Uh, I am the deputy TV editor at vulture.com and you can find me on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. Keith. Um, I'm a freelance writer. You can find me on, on Twitter at kfip3000. You can find me uh, various various websites such as Vulture, uh, The Ringer, Fangoria, TV Guide, Rolling Stone. I'm all over the place. Scott, how about you? Uh, well, you can find me at home still. Uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm at home all the time. Um, and, uh, and we'll be here for months and months and months. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter at Scott underscore Tobias. And you can find my work at the New York Times, uh, you can, uh, Washington Post. Uh, the Ringer, Guardian, and Vulture. Uh, Tasha? I am the film and TV editor at Polygon.com. You can find my work on Studio Ghibli as both writer and a curator there. You can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. You can stay updated on the Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net, via Twitter at nextpicturepod, and via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. You can contribute to our Patreon and get bonus content, including more about when to show your uh, children certain films and when to not show your children certain films at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. And if you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. While you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks to Dan the Snake Jakes for his assistance in producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time.